Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hey, everybody. It's Joe, host of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Can you believe I am almost to show 100? Now, with the 90 shows that I've recorded to this point, I'm sure that there has to be at least one success story, maybe two, hopefully more than two. What I want to do for my 100th show is to highlight some of these success stories that have come from this podcast. That could be somebody who is a past guest who wants to highlight a deal that came from being on the show or potentially a listener or viewer who has heard of a company, decided to go and invest or heard of something and that turned into some type of business transaction. Something along those lines, I want to highlight those stories. Or if you want to just call in and wish me some some well wishes, or you want to call in and say that you want more of a specific type of show or you just want to say congratulations for reaching 100 episodes and still doing this, you can also do that. I'm going to listen to this. I'll probably re-record it, but if not, you will hear all of this for the next few episodes. And if you get sick of it, it's roughly two minutes long, so you can just skip through it. All right. Thanks, y'all. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Patrick Flem, CFO of, of RevTerra. RevTerra is an energy storage solution currently deployed as fast charging for electric vehicles. So rather than me trying to explain this, I just want to jump into the conversation, get Patrick on the mic, and get started. So Patrick, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to RevTerra. Excellent. Thanks very much for having me on the show today, Joe. I'm excited to be here. So jumping right into it, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background on myself. Uh, probably a story that sounds pretty familiar to a lot of people in the energy transition space, but I actually came from the world of oil and gas before joining RevTerra here. So my background initially, uh, I graduated from a school called the University of Tulsa up in Oklahoma, very oil and gas centric school. While I was there, I studied energy management and finance as a dual degree. And then shortly after that, I jumped right right into the world of oil and gas as a landman working for ConocoPhillips. So I spent a little bit of time in that job and then pretty quickly shifted over into the world of finance as a sell-side equity research analyst for a couple of large banks. And in those roles, I focused largely on the energy space very broadly, 
things like integrated oil companies, downstream refiners, and then most recently, uh, focusing on companies that fit into the energy transition landscape. That's where I started to get really passionate about the energy transition and where I also saw some of the many holes that affect the industry right this moment. That knowledge base uh, really empowered me to make a jump into switching over to a company like Revterra. And I joined in order to help build a, a technology that I think can be very influential in bringing the energy, the energy transition into the future. Um, so about the company, uh, Revterra is, as you mentioned, very broadly focused on an energy storage solution that is a fully non-chemical solution. So we're building the next generation of kinetic energy storage. What does that actually mean? It means we're, we're storing energy with motion itself. We're not using any of the things that you're familiar with in most battery lingo, like lithium, nickel, cobalt, or any of those other cra crazy chemicals. We're actually taking a really heavy piece of steel, spinning it up to high speeds, and then slowing it down to take the energy out. The faster it moves, the more energy that's stored, and as you take it out, you slow it down. Fully reversible process, but gives us a bunch of benefits that you cannot see in other solutions out there on the market today. So that can include things like it has a much higher power ratio, it has a much longer lifespan, and it can be made almost entirely domestically. So with this technology, the beachhead that we're hitting is in the, the world of rapid EV charging enablement. We essentially are looking forward to a world where EV drivers can recharge in 10 minutes or less, regardless of grid infrastructure in place anywhere in the U.S. or in the world. That is very exciting. So I I like how you you pointed out the... I mean, there's there's a lot of things you pointed out there. The the power aspect, the lifetime, the domestic production. I I want to first focus in on the the fast charging and EVs. Now you pointed out your specific focus is being able to recharge an EV in ten minutes or less. Is that the the general consensus on what is considered a fast charge? Is ten minutes and is and I guess is that a full charge or from my experience with people, they will essentially kind of do this bunny hopping where you charge for another 75 miles, then you'll drive, take another 10 minute break and then drive another 75 miles. So can you give us a little bit of background on, I guess, what is fast charging and where does RevTerra fit in? Yeah, absolutely. So there is a little bit of vagueness in the term fast charging today, the way that most people talk about it. Uh, fast charging can really range anywhere from on the lower end, about 50 kilowatts, all the way up to for uh, passenger vehicles, right around 350 kilowatts in its fastest form. So the, the higher level is really for newer cars like the uh, newer Teslas or the Porsche Taycan or things like that. And then the lower range of 50 kilowatts or so is really for older vehicles that don't yet have access to this newer technology. Uh, to put those kilowatt numbers into perspective of actual recharge times, the 350 kilowatt charger that I mentioned can do a, quote, full charge in right about 10 minutes. Uh, you're pretty much exactly correct in noting that most people never really go for a full 100% recharge. Most people are actually recharging from somewhere in the range of about 20% to 80% most of the time, just to minimize the amount of time that they're spending in stations and also to play nice with the chemicals that are inside of the battery on board the vehicle itself. Uh, to put a little bit more perspective into these higher powered charging numbers, uh, if you take just eight of these 350 kilowatt chargers and plop them down in one spot in one large charging station and you turn them all on at exactly the same time, that draws more power than a 1 million square foot office space. 
so this is pretty much exactly the problem that we're trying to solve with our technology here. So if you take all of that power and drop them at random points across the grid, particularly given our infrastructure that's been in place for many decades without significant updates, you run into huge problems. That's another part of the really big issue that we're trying to solve here. Yeah, that that sounds a little a little wild to think about because every, we keep talking about the grid infrastructure and the reliability of the grid, but I think that we we always talk about it in terms of trying to electrify everything, not as much thinking about what it would actually look like to say replace all the gas stations out there in a way that can still allow us to do cross-country road trips. And the way that you've just put it, you said only only eight fast charging, quote unquote, filling stations. But if you drive to to Houston, you drive everybody knows Bucky's, at least all of us in Texas. And those have what, 50, 60 pumps? And they're not all being used at one time, but but that is ten times or so larger than that example you just gave. So that's mm-hmm. uh it's mind-boggling to think how much energy that is. That's exactly right. It's a huge amount of power in very concentrated areas. And I think it's going to need for us to kind of reimagine how the filling station set up in this country and across the world really works moving forward. There's a bit of a drive to separating some of these stations into smaller locations. So putting just a smaller number of charging dispensers at one point and then spreading the rest out. So this kind of goes along with the infrastructure bills uh, push to get chargers every 50 miles or so alongside the highways. So you can kind of size down the number of depots, or you can rely heavily on technology like ours that can limit the amount of that power actually gets drawn from the grid. Instead, our technology takes the brunt of the power being pulled. And all of this is just in relation to the fastest level three uh, chargers out there today. They're getting ever faster. So level four is a charging standard that's uh, coming up after the highest level 350 kilowatt powers, which means we're going up from there. And then on top of that, you have things like EV trucks or fleet vehicles that the new standard is somewhere between one and three megawatts per charging dispenser. So that makes the problem even more acute for these really large vehicles. Uh, But our technology is capable of feeding all of these things. And essentially, we hope to limit the amount of stability that uh, instability in the grid that's caused by this influx of EVs in the coming decades. Hmm. So I want to I want to take one step back. Because I think I think we've we've highlighted the problem here on on what essentially being able to charge and having this electrified path or transportation system looks like. But I guess the the other question here is is a is another one of why fast charging? Because it sounds like maybe one solution is to just not have fast charging, and maybe that kind of alleviates this problem a little bit. But clearly there's a market for fast charging if we're going from level three into level four. And you said going three or four times even higher. So I guess why do why does it matter to have fast charging? Absolutely. So I think one of the biggest parts is that some people really just will not be able to charge over a longer period uh, overnight or something like that. So the early adopters in the EV space tend to be of the wealthier subset of people means they have larger homes with dedicated garage space that they can install a charger in. As we move to spread EVs across everybody in the segment, uh, that means some people just won't have access to a garage. Or if you live in a shared space, you might have to park on the street. You can't plug in. Beyond that, all of the commercial fleets and the trucks that I mentioned, 
if you have to pause overnight and do none of your driving, then it means you're going to have a whole lot of downtime and lose productivity. Also, if you're on a road trip, what happens if you're 300 miles away from home or from the nearest place that you can park for several hours? All of this means that really there is a space for level two slower charging overnight, but we think that the massive majority of the market's going to drift towards these higher power, faster charges over time. The other big reason is for convenience. Uh, if you're a driver, the last thing you want to do on your road trip is pull over to the side of the road for a couple of hours to refuel your vehicle. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. As I said before, we'd really have rather we'd rather have people uh, get back on the road in 10 minutes or less in driving, minimize the amount of time they sit uh, and kind of wait for things just to recharge in the vehicle space. So, okay, yeah, so that that all makes a lot of sense, and I didn't even think about the the productivity side of it, especially as we talk about the larger, larger long haul transport of material, because. Anytime you get on the road for a road trip, there are there is a semi driving delivering goods that that we all need. So we definitely want those trucks being able to operate twenty four seven as they do right now. Yep, that's exactly right, and that's it's a, a bit of an earlier stage market at the moment. You don't see too many electric um, large semi trucks driving around, but I think the flood of those is coming over the next decade or so. It's really going to start happening. And you're exactly right that we need full productivity and those cars need to be driving constantly to make any sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. So one more question specifically on the charging rate, and then I want to start talking about how RevTerra is incorporating. But when we're talking about the charging, I guess, can you explain to me the the rate of charging for a level two, which I guess is the 50 kilowatt versus level three, which is the 350 kilowatt? I should have explained that a little bit better. So all of the 50 kilowatt to 350 kilowatt range is actually classified as DC fast charging. Uh, so those are all fast chargers and they're all level three. Level one and level two are the slower kind of overnight style of charger that you typically find in somebody's garage or inside of a, a, a large parking garage where people live or something like that. Those power levels uh, tend to be more in the range of call it one kilowatt to maybe 15 or 20 kilowatts. Uh, and then you start getting above 50. That's when you're getting into the level three DC fast range. Okay. Okay. And so what you're saying with that level one and level two, those are things that take hours potentially overnight to fully recharge your EV versus the 50 kilowatts and higher. Those yep. can take less time up to your machine, which is 10 minutes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm happy to go into this a little bit more as well. I didn't really specify. Our battery modules are actually built to output a maximum power of 400 kilowatts each. Uh, which would actually support a bit higher than the current standard for the highest level three uh, fast charging equipment on the road today. The reason we've done that is because you can also combine several of our modules in one place to feed the even faster semi-truck type of market that I mentioned there as well. Hmm. Okay. Now, with the with the difference between the level one and level two charging, have have you and your team looked at the adoption rate of EVs specifically related to, to charging capability? Because earlier you, you pointed out the, the ideas of living in a shared space or living in apartments, having to park on the street, essentially not having access to simple overnight charging. Is that, I guess, the 
the question is, is that really slowing EV adoption or is that, I guess, just a, a part of the fact of life right now? Absolutely. So uh, one of the biggest reasons that people are not adopting EVs is the so-called range anxiety. There was a recent survey that was done by a group over at Chicago, some kind of economics group that said of the people that said they were not likely to buy an EV as their next vehicle, somewhere around 80% said that the reason was a lack of charging infrastructure in public. Uh, So this problem is a hugely uh, important thing for the adoption of EVs moving forward. And we're driving the charge to kind of get this issue resolved so more people can get into the EVs. Otherwise, driving EVs is an absolutely phenomenal experience uh, and can definitely see why people are drifting towards them over time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So I think it, it, I think by now we should all be able to see and understand the, the value of getting more EV and charging infrastructure and the the value of of fast charging in the fact that that could open up more adoption but you've pointed out those i guess you could call them flaws or or inherent challenges because of all of the energy needed and that is where essentially on-site storage comes into place which is where Revterra comes into place so explain to me and the audience how exactly does does something like mechanical storage, I guess, solve this solution or, or yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the, <clears throat> the things that I like to contrast when we're looking at this discussion are really three things. The first is the status quo of building a station without any supporting storage. In order to do that, you have to go about developing a full new kind of infrastructure around the charging station. You have to do things like get involved with the utility provider, uh, the local regulators. You have to dig trenches for new distribution lines to bring in the high power required to actually build the site. You have to order equipment like high-voltage step-down transformers, which uh, from our recent discussions we've heard can take something like 120 weeks to order at the moment, given local supply chain snarls, or I mean global supply chain snarls rather. Uh, all of this means that building a station is, is a hugely time-consuming exercise, uh, it's also very, very costly, and you know none of it is very convenient for getting more charging stations for drivers and solving that kind of chicken-and-the-egg problem of convincing drivers that there are enough charging stations out there. That's the first option. The second option, as you pointed out, is there are alternative uh, kind of battery chemistries or technologies out there today that could be used for a similar uh, type of exercise of using them to support the build-out of charging stations. Uh, with those... The issue is that um, these chemical batteries really suffer when they have to go through a large number of cycles. Uh, Our technology can do a huge number of cycles. It can output a much higher level of power uh, and has a much more clean bill of environmental uh, products that go into it, largely recycled steel and recyclable at the end of its lifespan. But basically, uh, those chemistries and those batteries that when they're being put in aren't even really being deployed all that uh, popularly yet today. So we think our solution is a really good alternative um, for helping deploy this infrastructure. Uh, another issue with kind of these charging stations as they are without supporting storage is the demand charges uh, that typically go along with operating stations. Whenever you draw a huge amount of power at an operating site, you're actually not billed on the amount of energy used, but the amount of maximum power that you've drawn. So when you do that 1 million square foot of office space's worth of power, like I mentioned earlier, your bill can be astronomically high, even if you're not using an incredible amount of energy. This can be triggered even if just one car comes into charge. 
our technology, since it has an incredibly high power to energy ratio, can offset these demand charges much better than anything out there on the market today. So we can help this station become a much more profitable enterprise for the operator. And we can also make it uh, exactly as convenient as they, the drivers themselves want with this higher power charging. That's a really a really good point that I didn't even think about when it comes to EV charging. That if you have a little bit more information, I'd love for you to to dig in a little bit more. When we talk about the the that maximum rate charge that a that a, a retailer has to pay for their electricity. That is something that we think about a lot as far as whenever we're siting out projects for for geothermal potential clients. We're always saying like even if it's even if it's only 150 kilowatts total energy, that could help you because of that that upper echelon of how much power you need and talking through the holistic system because that that peak is ultimately what we're trying to do. We're trying to shave the peak for our clients. Can you help the audience understand in case anybody doesn't know about the the electricity and the rate system? Can you just talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So when you get your electric bill as a commercial site operator, there are a couple of things that go into the actual total that you'll see at the bottom. Uh, the first is the part that you're probably most likely familiar with. And as a consumer, everybody sees this on their home electric bill, but it's essentially a charge of cents per kilowatt hour. So that's a metric of energy used. And it's essentially uh, exactly what I just said. It's however much energy used over across the entire billing period. The other part that people are less familiar with is what's, the, what's called the demand charge. This is a dollars per kilowatt charge, which is typically rated at a period of about uh, whatever the maximum kilowatts that you've drawn at the site over, I think, a five-minute period at any given point over the billing cycle. So that means if there's any spike over a five-minute period throughout that entire period, you get charged based on that power level. Uh, for a typical charging site that's drawing, call it uh, 400 kilowatts, if you were to put in a battery system like ours in order to cut that amount of peak power drawn, you could save the site tens of thousands of dollars per month off of their bill. And that typically drastically overweighs the charge that they would be paying even for the energy used to re recharge the vehicles themselves. So how exactly would something like your system actually cut that down? Can you walk us through that? So 400 is going to be the 400 kilowatts is the peak that somebody's going to be charging their vehicle. But how do you actually make it so that you're never using 400 kilowatts at the site? Yeah. So I'll back up a little bit and kind of talk about the fundamental usage of our product in this context. What we're really doing is analogous to uh, a situation that I'll describe here. So imagine you have a faucet that's dripping a little bit of water. Uh, and what you want is you want to take a shower. We are essentially the bucket there. So you take the bucket, you put it under the dripping faucet and let it fill up. And then whenever it's full, you turn it around, grab the bucket and dump it over yourself to take the shower. We are the bucket for the power itself. So we draw power in at a very slow rate from the existing grid connection. We let it recharge our system over a slower, longer period of time. So the grid never sees a sharp draw of power. And then when your Tesla comes in and wants to recharge at close to a 400 kilowatt power level, you dump it directly from our system. If you do it like this, the grid never actually sees that high level of power draw. 
And our system actually ends up getting most of the cycling that the cars come in and do. Okay. That's a, that's a great analogy. And I think it helps, helps make it very clear that it is just almost a, a simple, slow draw, but it provides this huge, massive power source that can immediately go in with a, with a system like that, I would imagine that there's a limitation in terms of how many Teslas can come in and refuel. So what, I guess, let's talk about some of these limitations in terms of, of that. Like if you've got a Tesla road show down the street and they all want to come in and fill up, how many charges do you have in your system? Yeah, that that's a great question. So uh, as I, I think I gave the specs of each module itself before, but each one of our batteries is 100 kilowatt hours of energy and a maximum power output of 400 kilowatts. Uh, so that's what the system is designed for. And we're actually also looking at higher power versions of the system in the future. Might be something we come out with a bit later. But in this specification, 100 kilowatt hours is roughly enough to recharge fully between two and three back-to-back vehicles at a time. Uh, so the average battery size for an EV right now is somewhere in the range of 45 to 50 kilowatt hours. Most people are doing something from 20 to 80% in that range. Uh, so you can typically do somewhere between two and three cars as they come into the station for a full recharge. If you ever need to do more than that back-to-back, or you expect to have higher traffic periods like you've, uh, like you've expla- explained there, what you could do is you could put more of our modules in one space. You could double the number of our systems that are in place. They would recharge over lower demand period times, like overnight, and then they would discharge into the vehicles during the highest demand periods, uh, like the middle of the day or during the commuting hours or if people are leaving a convention, like you said. Okay. Now, when we're talking about putting multiple of your modules, what kind of size are these systems? Because that's one of the things that I think about. I, I saw previously the the iron iron flow battery that's out there that's going to take the space of a football field. That seems like a, a frankly a very large gas station on the order of a Bucky's. What about Revterra? How large is one of these modules that can recharge several Teslas? Each one of our battery modules is right about, uh, call it five foot tall and about seven foot in diameter. So if you're interested, you could probably put two of these roughly side to side in a standard sized parking spot. Uh, That's kind of roughly the footprint that we're going for here. And it should fit pretty nicely into any existing parking lot that you've got in place where most of the infrastructure seems to be going for charging. Uh, pretty reasonably sized, and particularly given the power of our system, it's actually a much better footprint than the chemical alternatives as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a like a really great size. Now, one thing that you mentioned earlier that I do want to talk about a little bit is supply chain. You mentioned that your system can be fully built domestically, and it's all relatively straightforward, easy to access components and materials. Can you talk about that a little bit more in terms of, is that, I guess, big scale kind of ideas like, do you have a a factory? Are you currently machining this? Do you have this resilient supply chain that you've already sourced? Like, how are you thinking about scale up with something like that? 
Absolutely. So I'll start with uh, talking about kind of why supply chain is such a hot button issue in the battery space right now. Uh, on the chemical side of things, it's really twofold. The first is that the actual inputs to the batteries themselves have gotten a lot more expensive and a lot less easy to find for the cell producers. That's the first issue. So it means the battery prices have gone up a little bit. Now, things like lithium are starting to come a bit back down over the last year and a half, which has been absolutely crazy, but they're still really elevated above where they were several years before. The second order effect of that is really that buyers of batteries are unable to secure supply from the cell manufacturers themselves. Some of the smaller players are not even really able to secure orders. Only the largest, uh, only the largest parties building really large format projects have a really secure sense of where they're going to get their next batteries from. So that's kind of the, the place that we're starting comparing against. For our system, as you mentioned, the inputs are almost entirely a different uh, order of business here. Our largest input by mass is recycled steel. So by mass, we're roughly 99% recycled steel. Uh, that also has the really nice effect of at the end of our life, it is fully recyclable steel once again. Uh, steel, readily available commodity product. We have dozens of suppliers that we could source this from all across the U.S., uh, so we don't really have any issues with finding input for what we're doing here. Uh, and then everything else that goes into the system is a pretty small amount of really readily available also commodity products. So we have a few things like magnets, uh, superconducting materials that we source, uh, and various other things that go into the system, but all very, very readily available and in generally very small quantities, given the energy capacity of each module. So as far as our supply chain and the actual availability of our, of our product, we're pretty early stage in our commercialization effort. We're just now in the process of building our first several commercial scale full units right this moment to deliver to our first paying customers. Over the next uh, six to 12 months, we expect to be on the order of tens of units. Uh, so not a huge amount of supply. We're really waiting to, the, uh, to test those first products out in the field to a much greater extent before we expand drastically. And we expect that in probably the second quarter or so of next year, that's when we'll launch an effort to build a much larger factory and start building hundreds and eventually thousands of these per year. That's really what our uh, kind of roadmap for building larger volumes of these is. But the actual supply chain for what we're buying to build into the, into the system itself, very readily available. And we expect when we have that larger factory that we should have no issues fulfilling orders for anybody that needs them. That is very exciting, and and I think that's a that's a it's a, a very I guess exciting optimistic outlook, and I I guess I'll be anxiously awaiting to hear some of those first results because it, it was very cool. Met you at Sarah Week and saw some of the renditions, and all of it was just very exciting to see and. And glad to hear the the kind of five or, or shorter even outlook to scaling to hundreds to thousands of outputs. So I think this is a good time to transition into those final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. That first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? So I'll tell you about one that I read quite recently that's been very interesting to me. Uh, I've been pretty fascinated with the psychology and sociology uh, sector. So obviously, technology is critically important in making things move and enabling markets. But really, it's it's ultimately the people themselves that drive the changes and make, make the world move. Uh, so the book that I, I'm going to recommend is called Originals by Adam Grant. And it's really about what makes people original and what enables us to make those kind of 
really massive breakthroughs in anything from startup life to the creative sphere or even things like civil rights leaders. Uh, so it really has a great uh, kind of list of things that we can do to position ourselves to break to have those original breakthroughs and really contribute to new things happening in the world uh, and break out of the box of conformity and kind of the everyday that we're expected to have. That sounds like a great book. And and I always like you, you hit it right on the head there when you say, really, it's ultimately, I guess, the people's choice, like whatever the people want is ultimately what's going to be moving at that time. And it goes back to that idea of, for all of us, we we are always selling something, whether we know it or not. And so if we want to be selling something that is that is not the status quo, we have to be original and have to be thinking about how do we bring this new original thought and and sell it. So I like that one. I'll add it to my list. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? So I'm not sure I have any uh, incredibly breakthrough thoughts on this, but I like to be really optimistic. So I think I think the world will get there by 2050. So that's the kind of the goal set out by the UN and a lot of other major kind of climate organizations. Uh, a lot of news has kind of come out along the way since these goals were originally set out that seem like maybe it'll be a tougher reach to get there than a lot of people expected. But what I am is really a believer in technology. So there are a lot of companies out there like ourselves that are really pushing to get a new product out there that could be instrumental in having these new breakthroughs that remove carbon emissions from the atmosphere and help kind of electrify all these sectors. And I really think that people are going to continue pushing these various technologies faster than we expect, and they'll get us to, to net zero faster than most people are, are guessing. Here. Yep. Yeah. It seems like that is, that is the common theme is technology and human ingenuity continually get brought in continually get brought up when I ask that question, because ultimately that is what's going to get us there. And whether we are more adept to being procrastinators as a society and are going to push it to 2050, or whether we've just got a whole lot of go-getters and maybe we bring it back a little bit and hit it by 2030, 2040, I think it, it's all, it is all driven by human ingenuity, and the technologies that we develop. So now you actually get to ask me a question. Yeah, excellent. So you've talked to me about my technology today. I know you've had a lot of other really interesting guests on the show talking about various other technologies that they're bringing to the table. From all of these discussions or even outside of them from anything that you've experienced, what do you see as the area with, with the most room for improvement or the most room for growth in the energy transition space? That is a good question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. Man, and it is, it's tricky because obviously the grid needs to be modernized, but then you go back to if we had your solution everywhere, maybe we would have enough non-chemical storage that we don't necessarily really, if we had sufficient storage, maybe we could kick the can down the road and do routine maintenance on the grid. But then you also think, where are you going to get all of the storage? So it is a, it's a it's a complex question because everything is so interconnected. I 
I always talk about geothermal because I I've studied geothermal. I I actively promote geothermal, but even even in geothermal, the idea of of what I I like to say is geothermal is the answer because once you have a good strong foundation, everything can be built on top of it. But even to make that geothermal foundation, there are multiple different technological gaps that we are actively trying to fix. So I think if there was one area, one specific thing I had to lean in on, I would say operating at the extremes. Because I think that that is where energy is most costly and that is where the 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 individual components are most costly. So for geothermal, that is working at high temperature and high pressure, talking about 10 kilometers in the subsurface and anywhere from 350 to 500 Celsius. And then you think about energy up in, say, Fairbanks, Alaska, where during the winter, it could be as cold as negative 40 for a week straight. How do you actually operate something at those temperatures and at those extreme pressures and, and environments? I think that's where we've got the most room for improvement because I think those are going to be the areas that are going to be, for something like Fairbanks, Alaska, it's going to be the hardest to decarbonize because you're ultimately going to need a way to, to transport around. And typically burning something is, is easier. <laughs> and then generating electricity from deep in the subsurface, that's going to be one of those areas that's just hard to do. So absolutely. I love your answer. answer. <laughs> and there's actually a tie in to my product that I didn't even get to talk about before. And that we have an incredibly broad operating temperature range that other batteries can't even get near. So we can go anywhere from negative 50 C to plus 50 C things like Alaska are well within our purview and other batteries can't really play that game. So I think your answer is great. And I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. Well, Patrick, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you've ever been skeptical of looking at EVs or if you've never gotten a chance to drive one before, I'd suggest that every one of the listeners should take a look. I think, uh, you know, EVs are where it's at and technology companies like mine are making it more inconvenient every single day. So I think uh, the future in the EV space is coming faster than you'd think. All right. Well, Patrick, thank you for that. And Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link for that is in the show notes. Please go fill it out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. 
Learn more at OGGN.com.